Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Celeste Stein Show. I'm your host, Dr. Celeste Stein, and I hope you will come on in here and like, share, and subscribe to my channels on BBS Radio and YouTube. We greatly appreciate you tuning in to the show where we cover news you can use, self-help topics, and entertainment. Now, on today's show, we have a very special guest joining us who doesn't really need much of an introduction, but in case you didn't know, My fellow journalist, Les Trent, is an Emmy Award-winning and nominated senior correspondent for CBS Media Ventures Inside Edition. He joins us today to talk about some of the many exciting stories he's covered over the years since joining the team in the fall of 2000. Les, thanks so much for being here and welcome to the show. Dr. Stein, it is my pleasure. Uh, First of all, can you hear me okay? That's the first question. Absolutely. All right. Secondly, I I do have a point of clarification. Emmy nominated. We call ourselves at Inside Edition the Susan Lucci of Emmy nominations because (laughs) we are nominated all the time and we always lose to entertainment tonight. So but next year we're winning. Of course, uh, of course. I'm speaking it into existence, see. (laughs) Okay, thank you. And then um and then also I I, apologies for coming to you from our car because Gwen, my wife, and I, our lives are so crazy, and uh, we are actually en route to D.C. to see a few of our children. Yeah, you know, between us. Yeah. Yes, I don't know I when you ever told you that, but yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I didn't know that. Yeah. I love D.C. Every time I go there, I say, I could totally live here. It's got such a great vibe to it. Yeah. So anyway, so we are, so we're going, and uh, this was something that was that came up at the last minute uh you know we're, we're a blended family so i have a son and a daughter and then i have two uh, stepdaughters and they're they live in all different parts of the country so we're always doing something um on the weekends and so again apologies for coming to you from the car i know no, it's not no. the best it's not the best look <laughs> <laughs> i said well i know he's a man on the go i just really appreciate you're taking the time uh, and, and being it's my pleasure man. thank you so much well I know you've been a journalist for many moons, over two decades, but I actually wanted to take you back to the beginning and ask you how you actually got started in journalism. Uh, yeah, it was actually, oh my goodness, what is, I, I graduated college in 82, so it's more like, what was it, 40? Um, and, uh, you know, I was, I was, um, I think I was fortunate in that uh, I grew up in Canada. My mother was Canadian. My father was American. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm actually an American citizen. I was born in Cleveland, but I spent my formative years in Canada and I went to college in Toronto. Uh, but I was living in a border town right across from Buffalo called Fort Erie. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where I went to high school. So I, when I say I was fortunate, I was fortunate, fortunate in that I was an American citizen living in Canada. So when I graduated college, um, I had two jobs. My first job was at the local newspaper in Canada mm-hmm. where I actually sold advertising copy. So I would go around, I would, I would make up ads for the, for the small businesses and go around and, and sell them and sell them ad space. And then I got a job working um, over the overnight shift at a radio station. Mm-hmm. So I would go back and forth across that international border, you know, every day. Wow. Um, and, um, and like I say, I, I was fortunate that I was able to, able to work in the States and live in Canada. And eventually I, I moved to, I moved back to the States. I moved to Buffalo um, where I started not just my radio career, but then I went into television in Buffalo and I worked at um, a couple of TV stations there starting off behind the scenes. I was a um, weekend producer. Mm-hmm. So that is basically someone, as you know, who puts the whole show together writes most of it you know you're on a you have a skeleton crew so you learn how to do everything and um and i went from there um you know i would i would hang out with the with the reporters all the time because that's what that was my ultimate goal was to get on air Mm -hmm. so i would hang out with them and when they were done writing their stories i would steal their tape and i would write my own story to put a demo tape together and right um so i put a demo tape together and they said okay we'll hire you as a reporter and they hired me as a reporter for three days a week, but I was still producing the weekends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, 
so I was like, this is, this is too much. And I, I got a job offer across town, uh, to anchor the weekends. And so I went across town and anchored the weekends and we were the, my co-anchor and I were the first black co-anchor team in the wow. city of Buffalo. Sandy White, a friend, a friend of mine who is, st- who is still in Buffalo. Uh, she and I were the, were the first African American anchor team in Buffalo. And I went from there to San Francisco and, and, you know, we can go on and on, but <laughs> I, I was, I think it, I was fortunate though in that, in that I only worked in two local markets before I started working on national shows. Because as you know, in this business, you know, people spend a lot of time moving from market to market, which is something I, I never really wanted to do. Um, so I was fortunate in that I worked in Buffalo, San Francisco, and then I started working for national shows. Right. I know when I got started, uh, I worked at WHUR Radio, and I was there with like Melvin Lindsay when he was uh, starting to wow. and people like Alvin Jones, who was the first, I think, VJ, the unseen VJ on BT. Right. Wow. Uh, Kathy Hughes was the general manager. I mean, I had no idea what rock stars I was really working, <laughs> but I started as an intern, an unpaid intern, and a couple of people said, this girl's working harder than anyone we have in here, and they went up to Kathy Hughes uh, and, and lobbied for me to get paid, so um, I, I started working for them, but I was in school in Atlanta at Spelman College, and um you know, I made all my friends. I was like, ah, I don't think I, you know, could actually like leave all of that. And, you know, right. Howard and, and, you know, I kind of wanted to get, I was the rebel in my family. I, I, I was the one that wanted to get away. So ended up going back, but they were like, oh, you're in Atlanta where the Atlanta child murders are going on. Do you think you could cover up that? Oh me? my goodness. I was like, could I, you know, gonna get paid? what? <laughs> <laughs> So I ended up covering, you know, the Wayne Williams trial. And wow. I mean, just the people I've met. Uh, I mean, it's like the editors of Time and Newsweek were in there. Um, Deborah Roberts was, I think, working for a, a, a TV station, maybe in Macon, Georgia. I mean, you know, just to meet people like that, people from Associated Press that, you know, it's like if you cross people's paths, you know, years later, it's just such a small world. But you know, very interesting. And and as you were saying earlier, just to explain to the audience, you know, television has these market sizes, you know, from one to like 300, you know, and they're, right. you know, ranked by, you know, uh, demographics and how large the city is and how metropolitan, et cetera. And so, um, you know, to be able to start someplace like DC, which is like a top 10 market. I mean, I had no idea, obviously, at the time, but, you know, in right. Atlanta and my friend, uh, one of my, my friends, they used to call us kind of the Brack Pack. We, uh, when I went back to Atlanta, she became the news direct- director at V103 in Atlanta. So she was like, Marjorie's like, hey, <laughs> you better come over here and help me. So <laughs> I go get, get some carts. Uh, wow up over here <laughs> well, you know it's interesting I, I i love your i love your origin story because there are so many um stories like that uh especially among people of color mm-hmm. and uh and it reminds me of of one thing that you know you you hear a lot of criticism about the media uh especially from from the right-wing media about about uh the liberal media right. and uh and I think that what what is lost in that is this: when I worked in San Francisco, there was um, there was an anchor at at the at what was what was his name? Um, I'm having a mental block, but it was a black anchor in town. They were they were like number number one forever, mm-hmm. and um, he got his job because he happened to have been working at the TV station. He might have even had like a a janitorial job or something, and you know there were there were riots and and they said hey, we need you to um, go out and cover these stories in in the in neighborhoods of color, and so there are a lot of us who started who started in the business because there was a need for people of color to tell our stories, yes. and I think that. 
and it's not just people of color. It's also it was also white reporters who were covering the civil rights marches, for instance. Right. And when you are covering something like that, um, and you can you can go back to the Dan Rathers of of the 1960s, and you're covering good versus evil, um, there is there's an obvious tendency to to want to point out the evil part of it, and yes. that today, that kind of coverage today, strangely, would be considered would be considered um, liberal media. When you think about covering something, you know, like the, the Bull Connors of the world, you know, there are actually people today in, on the right who would look at it and say that, that that kind of coverage is slanted when really what you're doing is you're, you're covering just the truth of, of, of this oppression that was going on. Um, but there, there are a lot of reporters whose DNA is covering the civil rights. Mm-hmm. The civil rights movement and so right. you know that that is um you know so so whenever i hear somebody talk about the liberal media i always think that they don't really they really have not gotten into the genesis of of what journalism was back in the 60s and 70s and right. how a lot of people right. got into this yeah mm-hmm. um that reminded me you know just being in school in atlanta and and being able to cover some of those stories. By the time I graduated, I was working um, at Georgia Public Television doing a show called The Lawmakers. So every day, instead of going to class, I was doing all my classes independent study and I would uh, cover the legislature. I would go down there and, you know, listen all day, have to like time code everything and, um, you know, work with a, a producer to kind of get everything written up, you know, for the show. It was like a one hour nightly uh, newscast uh, that aired from six to seven. But at that time, you know, what was so um, interesting is that we got to meet people like, you know, Julian Bond, who was, you know, a senator at the time, and um, Andrew Jackson, uh, um Andrew Young, but Maynard Jackson, um, all these people that, uh, you know, were there under, you know, the direction of Governor Zell Miller at the time. And so just to have that experience, but to learn a little bit about politics and civil rights, um, I I also was thinking um, when I was in school, my, (laughs) my roommate at the time, her best friend was dating Dexter King. Oh, boy. Uh, and obviously, you know, to pay homage uh, to him, he, you know, passed uh, this week. Yeah, last week. Yeah. I would come to my dorm room and he would be sitting there, you know, <laughs> hanging out, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know. I that, know. And he, you know. and he of all of his children looked the most like his father. Yeah. So I'd yeah, be frozen. Was... I'd be sitting on the edge of my bed going, oh my God. <laughs> like, that's <laughs> Wow. But, you know, it's interesting, too, that, uh, you know, when you talk about having to sit there and and um, and transcribe, you know, things that are happening and then turn around and turn it and, and find those find those sound bites or find those parts of the story that are relevant to the day's news. That is a skill that that you that is really um, it, it takes a, it takes a while to, to gain that skill, because I remember being overwhelmed covering something like a court case where you're listening to all of this information and then you have to you have to narrow it down to a minute 30 story and then do a live shot around it in like in like two hours right and I just remember that feeling of sitting there and in, in in a courtroom for instance or co- coming something with, with the legislature and being completely overwhelmed right but you have no choice but to get it done and that's the problem with some of the I hate to use the word the kids. Some of the kids today who say, I don't want to work in a small market. I want to start in New York City. Mm. Uh, and they don't understand that, that, you know, it, it learning, learning all of that stuff yeah. is what makes you better, which makes you better at everything else. Yeah. I mean, the note taking, you know, they give oh. you those little reporter <laughs> notebooks and you, you have a ton of them. Well, yeah. I, when I was in uh, Lynchburg, I actually worked in the Lynchburg Roanoke market and my very first day on the job, this is a funny story. Um, 
they said we're going to send you to a like like a town hall meeting that was happening in Amherst County, Virginia. So it was probably you know about 30, 40 minutes from the station. So um, they said we're going to send you with another one of the reporters, and he's going to go and he's going to just kind of help you and kind of show you the ropes and stuff. Well, thank God for Danny Deal. Da- thank God Danny Deal <laughs> because. You know, it was like Appalachia, and you, the the Southern drawl, the draw. I couldn't understand. <laughs> you can understand what they're saying. Word that was being said. I was terrified. I said, "I'm going to get fired on my first day on the job." You know, like I couldn't understand. <laughs> and I mean, I literally, I said, I, I was like grabbing him. I said, I, "I don't know what they're, I don't know what they're saying." And it went on for you know, it was like one of those two or three hour meetings that you're just sitting there. It's like, oh my goodness. <laughs> So he said, don't worry, I'm going to help you. <laughs> we deciphered everything and, you know, wow. got to the main point. But they cover so many points. You're like, what if this is news? Especially if I can't understand it. But it was, it, we finally got there, you know. But Trial by fire. <laughs> oh, yes, for sure. For sure. That, And I'm sure there are many stories like that of, of journalists that the journalists have. And, I mean, I just remember that that whole time. That They still, at that point in time, they had smoking in the newsroom. And oh, they, my God. I remember it. Oh. <laughs> well, but anyway. <laughs> I, I remember it well. Things have changed, right? Yes. Thankfully. Um, yeah. So let's talk about some of the most memorable stories you've unfolded over the years. One that really um, stood out to me is the feature story that you did on the homeless man with the golden voice. Oh, yes. My goodness. Like that story, it just was, it just touched, I think, so many people. Um, Yes. So how did you find him? Well, you know, it's one of those stories that started in, as most do, with a local news story. Um, we had seen this um, report, and it, and, and it blew up. It was everywhere. Mm-hmm. So my assignment desk, and this is how this is how it works at Inside Edition. You know, something happens somewhere, and you get a phone call, or or you know, you're sitting at your desk, and someone will say, "Oh, you need to get on a plane to so and so." So that morning, it, someone the assignment desk called me, and they said. I forgot where it was. Do you remember what town it was in? Um, I hmm. <laughs> I don't remember. Anyway, was yeah no, I don't remember either. Um, I, I could look it up. I'm using my phone. Um, anyway, so I was on uh, the next plane. It was somewhere cold. I remember that. And at this point, he had been inundated with media requests. So he was actually doing a live radio um, interview when I finally arrived in the city. So we go to the radio station and we're waiting to um, interview him. Now, we're a news magazine show, so there's a lot more to telling a story than just interviewing somebody. So Mm. I had to take him back to the place where he lived uh, under a bridge uh, at that intersection and and, um, you know, there's just, there's just a lot of so-called B-roll that we have to get in order to make a story work. But he was being harassed so much by the, by the media that I, I had to, you know, I have to corral him for myself mm-hmm. for at least an hour or two. So the challenge in telling a news magazine story is that, um, is that you want it to be as, to look as exclusive as possible. So in addition to shooting my interview with him, I'm also fending off all the other press and I'm saying to them, listen, you can do this when I'm done, but I need this time. I need this time alone. I can't have other cameras in my shot. And, mm-hmm. and it makes, it, it makes storytelling um, a little bit more difficult when you are telling a story that you want to give an exclusive look to. So, um, so we were, we were lucky enough to, to squirrel him away, to take him back to the site where he had been living to, um, to get video of him with his signs. And, um, and, and we also, um, followed up with that story because it was such an amazing story. Um, I don't know if you remember, but he ended up getting a contract with 
with Kraft macaroni and cheese. And he was doing commercials for them. And he, uh, he actually has a, a voiceover career as a, as a result of, of those stories. I believe we were probably one of the first national shows uh, to put him on. And so we're, we're proud of that, that we were able to tell his story. Yeah. And I mean, just, just look at the impact that one story had on that man's life. And Mm -hmm. I mean, that's almost like something that just was meant to be that, you know, what an incredible job you did on that story. It was just, you you know, one of those things that really stands out in my mind, but are there other stories that you find to be like, highly memorable in your mind like what is kind of in your mind one of your most memorable stories to cover well i mean so many i I, I, there's so many the ones i the ones that are memorable are the ones that you don't want to remember you know Mm. sandy sandy hook i was there that morning um 9-11 oklahoma city uh um, i unfortunately covered way too many of those of those awful stories, Parkland high school. Um, and you know, it's, I was, I was thinking about, about Sandy hook in particular, uh, driving up there that morning and not knowing the, just how awful it was going to be. At first we heard these stories that, that it was somebody in the office who had, who had, brought a gun and accidentally shot themselves in the foot we're hearing all these kind of benign stories that that really and and as you're driving up there as a reporter you're praying to yourself please make this not be awful please make it not be awful especially when you have children and uh yeah and then to to arrive there uh you know there are certain there were scenes that that um that are obviously seared into your into your mind but you go sometimes from being a journalist to to being a parent right. and there was one scene in particular we were parking our car a couple of blocks away from the school and i saw this woman and you knew just by looking at her that it was a mother and mm-hmm. she was racing to the school and and there was this look on her face mm-hmm. And I said to my camera crew, do not put a camera in that woman's face. Right. Let her be. Right. Now, you know, you know, when you look at stories in the newspaper, you might, you might see an image of that, that woman shot from afar. But mm-hmm. to put a television camera in someone's face right. yeah. is a lot more invasive. And so there's, right. there's actually a bit of a disadvantage to covering a story like that because you know, you you just you're trying to be as sensitive as possible, and there was nothing to be gained for me to stick my camera in that woman's face. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, so yeah, you, the, unfortunately, the bad stories are, are the ones you remember. But I think one of my most memorable stories was um, I spent uh, two weeks with Michael Jackson. Oh in, my gosh! Yes, in <laughs> Auckland, Auckland, New Zealand, and Bangkok, Thailand. And it was right. right after his last trial mm. and he was on something. I think it was called the, I think it was the victory tour at the time. Mm-hmm. And, and it was a weird thing. I was actually covering another story and I get a phone call from my assignment desk and they said, Hey, and this was back in the days when inside edition was owned by the King brothers. So it was mm-hmm. a King world production. If you remember I do at remember. the end at the end of all of these syndicated shows like Oprah, Wheel of Fortune, Jeopardy, it would say King World Production. Well, we were part of King World. Mm-hmm. They they started, the King Brothers started Inside Edition. And, um, and I was shooting this story. I'll never forget. I was in Omaha shooting a story and I get a phone call. And my assignment desk, one of my managing editors said, listen, we Michael Jackson has a lawyer who's a friend with one of our lawyers and he owes them a favor. So they're going to let us tag along in Auckland, New Zealand and Bangkok, Thailand with him. And the only thing is um, he's not going to give us an interview, but you can shoot all the B roll you want. And you're going to be right. You're going to be part of his entourage. And wow. So sure enough, <laughs> the first place we went was, I believe, I think the first place was Auckland. It was, it was, it was New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we, 
So we get there. We're staying in the same hotel as him. We've got these, we have a contact person. And uh, every time Michael Jackson did something, they would call to our room and they would say, okay, uh, Mr. Jackson is going to a record store. Meet us in the lobby. So we'd go to the lobby and we would get in our car and we were part of their entourage. So we're driving with a police escort. We go to a record store. They close down the record store. Michael Jackson is walking around buying records. I'm standing 10 feet from him doing stand-ups. And here we are in a record store, blah, 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 blah. And it's just surreal, you know, because you're thinking, here I am with, with this, you know, this king of pop. Yeah. I can't ask him any questions, but he's right over my shoulder. Hmm. And and then what happened is um, we he did a he did a tour of a of a of a hospital. And so he's in the hospital room and I'm there with my camera crew right there in the hospital room as he's talking to these kids. And my sound guy was in there with a boom mic. Hmm. And Michael Jackson looks at our boom mic and he says to his guys, because he had camera Michael Jackson shot everything. Everywhere he went, he had a camera crew. Oh, wow. he, looks at our, he looks at our camera crew, and he looks at our, our, our boom mic, and he goes, hey, how come we don't have a boom mic? <laughs> and so I said to him, I said, anything you, if you want any of this video, we'll get it to you. And then we, we, walk, out, we walk out to the hallway, and Michael Jackson is just standing there. So... I looked at my camera crew and I just walked up and I started asking him a few questions. And uh, and his PR person goes, hey, hey, no interviews. And I said, I said, this is not an interview. I just asked him a question. <laughs> and that actually happened a few more times between Auckland, New Zealand and Bangkok, Thailand, where he would just be there. And I just like, hey, blah, 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 blah. And, and that was enough. The okay. video that we shot in that time. And those few little sound bites that I got with him, the one-on-ones, was enough to give us know, ten stories. <laughs> That's really cool, man! What a story! <laughs> yeah, that was pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, and I you know, remember, you remember the trial up in uh, Chicago when I was at, in graduate school at Northwestern? Um, he, the trial was up there where uh, with that Paul McCartney song, "The Girl Is Mine." Oh, the girl is mine. Yeah, so I, I got to cover that uh, while I was wow. in school because we, we, you know, we were assigned actual TV stations, uh, you know, and so that that was one. And yeah, I mean, you know, it's just he's fascinating, you know, really to even be able to kind of be in his yeah. presence. There's so many people that wanted to interview him and what have you, but um, though I mean, he he is just incredible. Like so, yeah. wow. And that yeah. that is a story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean there there've been a few um there've been a few celebrities. You know, we don't really cover the celebrity stuff as much as we used to. We used mm-hmm. to actually compete more with with entertainment tonight. Now we are we are we do entertainment, but we're a news magazine show. So we cover whatever the news of the day is. Um but I also had uh I had a fun encounter with James Brown. I think it was like the, it was months or maybe a year before he died. And uh, he was performing in New York city. And um, it was a small venue. And we were going to get one-on-one with him in his dressing room just before he went on stage. And uh, his press person came up to me and he goes whatever you do you must refer to him as Mr. Brown do not call him James Brown I said you know it puts the fear of the Lord in you I'm like okay <laughs> I got it Mr. Mr. Brown so uh so we finally are given the go ahead to go to walk into his dressing room he's he's waiting for us so the door opens up and we walk in and he's sitting there with his with his wife and uh and i walk in and i go mr brown he goes how you doing i watch inside this all the time he says call me james (laughs) 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 but i think and i I come to find out that that was the thing i think they they used to tell all the journalists you must refer to him as mr brown and then he would say call me james (laughs) 
<laughs> I have a funny one like that. Um, I was covering George Bush uh, Jr. came to, he loved country music. So he came to Nashville uh, for the CMAs and everybody was like out at Opryland Hotel <laughs> in Nashville. And so we were out in the parking lot and they were like, you know, they let a couple of journalists in to, you know, do interviews. And I'm like looking around, I'm like seeing Johnny Cash to my right, Glenn Campbell. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, it's just all the greats, right? Um, and then Dolly Parton kind of walked right in front of me. So I said, excuse me. I was like, we can't <laughs> doing an interview. <laughs> she was so nice um i love dolly yeah love she, she was awesome but she turns around right so my photographer he was a, he's great he was a, was a photographer for a long long time but he um pulled out the lavalier and went over to like pin the lavalier <laughs> on her and his hand started shaking <laughs> And she was like, oh, honey, you know, she was just like, it's going to be all right. And then he just looked at me, he said, you do it. You know, like, he just said, well, you know, that's, like, that's funny because I have so many photographer friends who have Dolly Parton stories like that. And she is always disarming and, and telling them, you know, this, this ain't my first rodeo. Go ahead. Do what you got to do. <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. She was so nice. You know, like, I, I, you know, I was like, Really? You're gonna put this on me? <laughs> but yeah, so but yeah, just meeting all those country music uh folks, just you know, it's it's interesting all the things you have to deal with kind of behind the scenes from handlers, you know, because oh, a lot of them handlers have, handlers are the worst. Yeah, <laughs> you know, handlers some are good, yeah. some are you know some are, some are good, but you know, I think most people don't realize that uh, that the handlers are the ones that um that can make or break your day and can be yeah. unreasonable. Right. And uh, I, I remember I was, uh, I am not, I'm not talking out of school because I've told this story before, but it was a Super Bowl, and Paul McCartney was performing. I remember and, yeah. we, we, and we were on the sidelines. We, when we cover the Super Bowl, we, we have great access. We're on the sidelines and then we get to come out and, and shoot the halftime show and, um, so I'm standing on the sidelines and I look over and Paul McCartney is 20 feet from me wow. and his press person is like, he's not doing any interviews. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, All right. so, you know, you're, you're like, I'm standing 20 feet from, from, from a beetle and I can't ask him any questions and it's just frustrating. And, uh, and I'm looking at Paul McCartney and he is looking up at the, they're, they're playing on the, the huge monitors, a, uh, a, a Beatles retrospective. And, and he's sitting there and he's watching it and he's watching it the same way we are. He's like, Oh my God, this is amazing. He's looking at his career. Like, wow. And so, and so I, he was just, he was just about to walk out onto the field to perform. And I said to him, I said, I walked up to him and I said, isn't this amazing? We're here. At, you're here at the Super Bowl. And he goes, yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? And, uh, and that's all I got from him. And his his press person, of course, cut me the nastiest look. But, you know, when you're putting a story together right. about covering the Super Bowl and you get that much from Paul McCartney, it made the story. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, that was enough, right? <laughs> that was enough. But if you listen to the if you listen to their press people, you'd be like, yeah. You know, if you listen to their handlers, you wouldn't get anything. And those are the things that make stories so, it gives it that extra oomph. You know, that that actually helps in telling the story. You want to hear from, yeah. from but I understand they have so many people who want to do the same thing that, yeah. you know, so you, you you obviously have to take chances sometimes. And just you do. That microphone out there and ask that question, you never know yeah. what you get, right? <laughs> <laughs> now, the thing is, the thing that, that was, i the really fortunate thing for us is that we don't cover entertainment 24 seven. So if, if this were ET, if I were working at ET and I had gone against the wishes of the press person, that could have been catastrophic because, you know, you would never get them again. Right. But since we, it's, since it's so infrequent that we actually cover it, um, you know, it's, it, it was fine. You're like, <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> All right, slap my hand later, right? <laughs> Whoops. Well, I want to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to be chatting with Les Moore 
<laughs> of uh, business and how much it has changed over the years. We'll be back right after this. A lot of things have come to a screeching halt due to COVID-19, but you should know that the court system in Tennessee is still open and holding in-person hearings for orders of protection and other types of abuse cases. If you have a hearing date, double-check on where your hearing will be held. If you need assistance on an order of protection or temporary restraining order, contact the Legal Aid Society at 1-800-238-1443 or visit our website at www.las.org. And welcome back. You are listening to The Celeste Stein Show. And we are chatting with Inside Edition senior correspondent, Les Trent. And Les, over the past two decades, uh, what are some of the most notable changes you've seen in the news business? And, you know, talking about like, you know, how it was when you started versus now. What are some of the biggest things you've noticed? Ooh, wow. Um, well, I think there's been a move away from really good, hardcore journalism storytelling. I think that the attention spans are so much shorter these days that um, we really are getting, I mean, the stories just are a lot shorter and they're, they're not nearly as in depth as they were when you and I started in the business. Um, even a news magazine show, our stories are shorter than they used to be, but here's the, I think the, um, it was really the brilliance of our show. And that is that the stories that we initially did for inside edition and the sister show that I worked for, which was called American journal, which was on from 93 to 98. Um, and it was canceled and, and then I came back to inside edition after, after that. But um, the stories we did back then were six and seven minutes long. And that was normal for what we call a news magazine story because we really get behind the, the nitty gritty of a story and tell things about the story that, that, um, that you wouldn't see in the local news or even the national news. And, we, and that still is the case to this day. But instead of six-minute stories that we used to tell back then, we now tell that same sort of news magazine-style story in a minute and a half. So whereas we used to have three or four stories in the show, we might now have 15, 16, 17 stories in the show. And I think when I say the brilliance of Inside Edition, I, I talk, I'm talking about our our co-EPs, um, Charles Lockman and, and Esther Pesson, really have owned this skill of telling a story with all of these different elements from all over the world in a single story. And it's only a minute and a half to two minutes long, and you still feel like you got behind the scenes of the story. For us, that is, that is a, a major difference. When you talk about the traditional news cast um in your local news if you watch today um you know you're getting you're getting the headlines but you're not really getting the depth that we uh, used i believe that, that we infused in our stories back in the back in the 80s when i started and i think that is just a function of people's lack of attention these days um you don't have you have way too many options these days for for viewing and for news and that's another reason why the stories are so much shorter because if you wake up in the morning as i do and the first thing you do is go to your news feed mm. by six o'clock at night that news is old Right. It's, it's, and so news directors have to find new and innovative ways to tell stories that people have heard about throughout the entire day. Right. And that alone is going to make your stories shorter. And I think that it, it just takes a little more creativity to, to, to tell some stories with depth these days. I was going to ask you too. 
I know, um, you know, being in a large city like New York, um, we would also often like in the news uh, place that I was last, uh, which was Nashville, um, you know, Nashville is a fairly big market. It's market size 29 and and growing, you know, uh, but it, it would be pretty easy for us to get around, you know, at that time, you know, it's getting right. more, more congested, but where you are, I mean, how do you like get from point A to point B <laughs> to actually cover a story? Is that, is that, you know, pretty difficult in terms of working behind the scenes and and getting the news that you need. <laughs> no, it's actually easier today because the technology has improved considerably. So back in the old days, for instance, if I, even if I were sent across town to shoot a story and, and you know, if you're in Manhattan, it can take you an hour and a half to get across town. Um, back then you, we would have to go shoot our story and then we'd have to bring it back to the studio and we would have to, um, you know, then the, only then could we start the editing process. I would have to come back also because I would have to go into the tracking booth, as we call it, which is the voiceover booth. And I would have to voice over the story. Today, we have something called a live view. A live view is a device that looks like um, it's mm, it looks like a backpack and it is a it is a device that you um take the card from your or you you, you can plug your 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 uh, camera right into it and it is it has inside of this little device um the equivalent of five or six cell phones and so what we're doing is we're transmitting that almost like you would with your cell phone directly into our control room and so i could shoot a story i could actually shoot it through the live view and it would go live into the control room so if i have a three o'clock deadline and i have an interview at 245 on the other side of town my cameraman and i can plug the camera into the live view it'll go directly to our control room and the editor can can then start editing right then and there Amazing. then and then instead of me having to physically come back to voice my story from the sound booth, I now use this trusty thing called my cell phone and they have, they have a device that plugs into my cell phone and I have a, and I have a good microphone and I, I voice my story right into my cell phone. It makes a, it makes a, um, it makes a file and I send that file to my producer and they put it right into the system there. So everything is a, is a lot easier these days. Even when I go on the road, I can take a lot, I can bring a live view with me. I've got my voiceover gear that fits in my bag. And, um, and, and things are a lot, they were a, a way easier. I can just remember just, just how heavy that stuff was. Oh. Crazy enough, in, in my class at Northwestern, it was 10 women. And of course, uh, everybody was the size. <laughs> <laughs> if you remember right. TV, you know but oh yes young people look it up but anyway <laughs> it was like you know the tripod weighed about 20 pounds the camera weighed about you know the deck you had to carry was like 40 pounds that's the world I came from you know and then you also had you know things like <laughs> the sound and you know the boom mic and that's you know, right out in, in teams of like you know, three and cover this stuff and all that stuff was so heavy. Now, you know, with backpack journalism, like you said, you can just <laughs> throw it on your back and, and yep. anybody can cover it. So that one good thing about that, certainly it opened up a lot of opportunities for, for uh, women uh, in, in the news business as well. So a lot of changes there, but yeah, that is true. Um, you know, also I think, we probably saw, I know you did a lot of coverage of COVID-19. Who didn't, if you were a journalist? Um, Absolutely. What are some of the things that maybe changed there in terms of how news was covered? And are you seeing some of those things continued? Oh, absolutely. Um, of course, we never, we never did Zoom <laughs> interviews back before COVID. Um, and what happened with COVID is that we were all working remotely as much as we could. 
So I set up a little studio at my house and I would do Zoom interviews all day. <laughs> and they would, re so they would connect from my office. I would connect on the Zoom and then the person we're interviewing would connect and they would record it back in New York and we'd put a story together and instead of having an in-person interview, we would just use the Zoom interview. And the quality got better and better as it went along. And we, to this day, will do, you'll see 10 or 15 Zoom interviews a day in our show. And when you think about, I mean, even, even the attack in Israel on October 7th, we, I was doing interviews with survivors uh, via Zoom in the days that followed. And that was all, that was all started during COVID. That, that, that whole technology and, and, and not just the technology, but the acceptance of seeing it on television, the acceptance of seeing uh, a reporter doing an interview over something like this, it, it was just, it just was not something we did every day. Right. And now when you see a story, when you see someone reporting on something and see a Zoom interview in the middle of it, it feels absolutely natural. And that was all an offshoot of, of um, COVID. Yeah, it's definitely been normalized, I think. Mm -hmm lot more. Um, also wanted to ask you, you know, I think there's been a real paradigm shift in the business when it comes to uh, things like fake news. And right. how do you think that has impacted uh, people's perception of true journalists? Because it seems like everyone is now kind of becoming a public figure or a journalist. Everybody picks up a camera, microphone. That's just how people nowadays uh, communicate and even brand themselves and get themselves out there. So how, do you think um, the negative connotation uh, is going to be something that uh, kind of continues? Well, it, it, it will continue. And I think the people who are, are going to have to make sure it doesn't taint the entire business are the people in the business and that, you know, you can't just put whatever you see on air and call it journalism. There has to be some sort of vetting that goes along with it. And, yeah. you know, sometimes I'll see something online and I'll think, I'll think this could be a story for us, but is it, is it real? Is it true? Is it something that, that somebody, um, that, that somebody orchestrated is it something you know and you can't first of all we there nothing goes on inside edition that does not go through our lawyers first and i thank god for that because when i was in local news you know you didn't you didn't have that what i call luxury because um Betting, you know because, yeah yeah because of also also you know cell phones weren't a thing back then weren't that big, wasn't that big of a thing back then. So you didn't have, you didn't have video coming in from all these different sources who were not news sources. Everything we put on the air when I was in local news in Buffalo and San Francisco was stuff that we shot. So, um, so again, you've got to, you've got to be very careful about vetting. A lot of it's just common sense. When you see some stuff, you're like, there's no way this is real. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, fake, yeah. So fake news is, is unfortunately here and it's and it's it's for us to to make sure that it doesn't see see the see airtime yeah i, I can remember, you know when i was in school at northwestern uh there was a guy who was like a financial analyst uh used to come on nbc rukeyser and uh, he came and talked to our class. And at the time, there were like, you know, your four main channels. You had UHF, VHF, you know, the little hanger you'd use on the TV to try to. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, he came to talk to us. And we had about, you know, 12 people in the class. And we're just sitting around a conference table. And he said, I know you all are going to find this hard to believe. He said, but right now, those a few channels that you watch are going to become like 300. They're going to be hundreds of channels, 
on cable and everywhere. And we're just looking at him like, what? Like, what, really? <laughs> yeah. And then it's like, yeah, and he was talking about how he thought the business was going to change. So one of the things that he said was, he said, because there might be, you know, fabrication of stories and things like that, that, and this hasn't quite happened yet. So this is to me really interesting because he was right about everything else. Um, he said, they're going to be people who become experts in particular areas. He said, you know, let's say you're, you're a seamstress. Sewing is your thing. You know, you'll, you may have a sewing channel, you know, there's somebody else, you know, it's cars and there's a car channel and all that. He said, eventually there will be so many things out there. Real news outlets are going to have to go to those experts to make sure that the content that they're getting is already kind of vetted and you have that trustworthy source. And I, I, I can really see that, that kind of thing happening. I, I don't really. Oh, know. it is happening. It is, it is happening. Yeah. It, it is happening right now. In fact, um, there are a lot of people who have become or have labeled themselves experts in certain things based upon what they do for a living. We use them all the time and they, uh, some of them are doctors and some of them just happen to be lifestyle uh, experts or, or whatever, but people are labeling themselves as experts at certain things. And if you watch, if you watch uh, any of the morning shows um, or, or, or even local news is doing it these days and, and, and we do it, we, you know, the, every, every winter we'll have somebody who is an expert t- telling us about, you know, you, you should rake the snow off your roof if you live in a certain area because this can happen and that can happen. So we are using those experts to this day, and 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 it's it's happening. What about building your own brand in news? That that was usually you know used to be unheard of. Um, oh yeah, everybody's like you know I'm so and so, and you know <laughs> oh, yes. that's different to me. But um, do you how important do you think that is? Um, brand building is very important these days i mean it is um you know you try if you're covering straight news not to brand yourself at all but but there are people who have built a or building careers now in television in in news by branding themselves an expert at something uh it happens all the time and it's it is i have to say it's probably the wave of the future Right. I think so. I, you know, yeah, I think it is. Um, we have, we have about, we have not that much time left, but I'm wondering if we could do this. Um, there, there's a story that I would like to, to share. And I, and I, I like this story because, um, you know, it's, it's a story that's just a, a regular person, regular guy who got, who got into this crazy situation where, he was actually kidnapped and it was a, it was a case of mistaken identity. Mm. And the reason this story resonates with me is because when you, if you sit down and you just watch the finished product of this story, or if you, if you read about it online, it almost reads like it's, it almost reads like fiction and it, and it reads like, wow, this is, this is, this is an interesting story. And I, and, um, and, but one of the things that I think people don't stop to think about, and that is, and you've dealt with this too, I'm sure, over the years, and that is just the real person behind it. Mm. So I was sitting across from this guy as he was telling me about this life-changing and, and uh, you know this scary situation, and he started to tear up, and and I started to tear up because I'm sitting here going. This is a real, this is a real life, flesh and blood person sitting in front of me telling this story that everyone's fascinated by. But for him, it's just personal. And, and, you know, and, and you, and I think the, I think really when you're, when you're storytelling, when you're, when you're out there telling other people's story, um, you know, you have to always, you have to always have heart. And so I love this guy uh, uh, sitting across from him, hearing him tell this story, yeah. um, you know, as, as, as a journalist. You're, 
Can we take a quick look? Let's take a quick look. Jeff Muller still gets emotional when he talks about the worst day of his life. The day this regular Joe from New Jersey was mistaken for a swindler and kidnapped by a ruthless biker gang. That life or death drama began in this parking lot as Jeff arrived to open up his pet supply shop. The bad guys were looking for a Jeff Muller who owed their boss money in a shady deal. Problem is, they had the wrong Jeff Muller. He's holding me. I'm trying to struggle to get out. I've already been hit in the face, both sides. Then I'm getting kicked, and then I'm getting tasers in the back while I'm laying down. Jeff says the gang zip-tied his hands and put a hood over his head. You got the wrong guy. I kept on telling him that over and again. You got the wrong guy. What did they say? They told me I embezzled money from somebody in uh, Missouri. I sell dog food. You know, I, you know, why would I embezzle anybody? The gang threw Jeff in the back seat and proceeded to drive clear across the country through Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, and beyond. Meanwhile, Jeff's wife, Gail, was desperately trying to figure out where her husband was. What'd you think had happened? I didn't know. I started to panic. The couple had no enemies, as far as they knew. The cops were also baffled. I was just so worried about him. I just couldn't figure out why he would disappear. At some point, the knucklehead kidnappers realized they had the wrong guy. But that made things worse. He's going begged and tagged, begged and tagged. What do you think he meant? Well, you're in the black bag with a tag on your toe in the morgue. Then a miracle. They broke down at a Missouri gas station. For Jeff, it was now or never. I'm thinking, okay, uh, you know, time's running out. I'm going to have to get out of here and do something. Out the door I went. His escape was captured on the gas station security cameras. You're fighting for your life. Yeah. Yeah, what else? I have no choice. Screaming like a maniac. Call the cops, call 911. I've been kidnapped. You know, I'm going nuts. You can see Jeff pleading for help, clinging to the counter. I'm like hanging on the counter, and I finally just collapsed and uh, just laying on the floor. His nightmare was over. This picture was taken just a few hours later at the hospital. Jeff's face is battered and bruised. The gang who couldn't kidnap straight was captured and charged with kidnapping. They were driving him to his death. Prosecutor Gregory Muller showed us the taser the gang used to kidnap Jeff. This was an innocent man who got kidnapped in broad daylight. He suffered greatly for a sin he never committed. Will you ever get over this? No, I don't think so. All three of the kidnappers were convicted. As for the real Jeff Mueller, he's safe and well and no longer lives in New Jersey. By the way, police checked him out and they found no evidence of any wrongdoing. What a story. Oh, my goodness. What a story. Yeah, that poor guy. Uh, you yeah. know, it's like these things, I guess, uh, are so unusual. But to get that story and be able to capture that and... I mean, you know, you were talking about the difficulty and how, I mean, you know, you kind of had to do a little bit of a reenactment and that kind of thing, just watching uh, very yeah. interesting and how you had to kind of piece that back together. I've, I've been right. in those shoes. Sometimes you're like, well, I don't, you know, we don't have anything to show for, for this. That's right. Well, we're, what do we, you know, you got to get creative, right? In other yeah. words. Well, that's why I wanted, that's why I wanted to end on that story because I think it, I think it best encapsulates what, what I, what a you know what a work day is like when you're telling a news magazine story and uh and it's why i love doing what i've been doing for the past 40 years and i wanted to ask you as we wrap up here what's on the horizon for less trent <laughs> like well i have a i have a um i have two instagram pages and a youtube a channel my youtube channel is the culinary correspondent i love to cook I also have an Instagram called the Culinary Correspondent, and uh, and I you know I I tell a lot of stories outside of Inside Edition um, for a series that I call uh, the Road Less Travels, and so you can find all of that on Instagram and uh, and on YouTube. Lovely, lovely. Well, I want you to know it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on our show today, Doctor Stein. The pleasure has been mine. Thank you. Thank you. I look forward to hopefully meeting you one day. I don't know if you head to NABJ, but hopefully. <laughs> I hope to go there this year. 
Me too. So hopefully we'll where, see. Where is it? Where is it this year? Um, Chicago. Perfect. Yeah. We have yeah. a we have a daughter. We have a daughter there. So it's. <laughs> Thank you. you so much. Thank you. And that is obviously all the time we have for now. We'll see you again in two weeks for our next live show. And don't forget, you can catch the replays on my YouTube channel and BBS radio. Please be sure to like, share, and subscribe. I'm your host, Dr. Celestine. Thanks so much for watching.